We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. You're in a lot of trouble, and maybe it's because, well, sorry, Canada. Ah, <laughs> 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 in Toronto. And because Philly sucks. I feel like I fear Boston most of all out of any of the Eastern Conference teams. Nah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Brew Hoop podcast, ringing in your December. This is Adam Paris, co-managing editor of BrewHoop.com, joined, as per usual, by Riley Feldman and Kyle Carr. And before I do the usual, how are you doing, fellas? I'd like to preface this by saying Riley Feldman mm. is joining us today in mm. the... Uh, somber, somber, somber afterglow of the Wisconsin Badgers absolutely taking an axe to the boat that Riley Feldman was more than happy to jump in, the SSPJ Fleck. And I'll say this. You have you seem to keep a very healthy distance as a Gopher fan for years, but the boat was looking shiny. Captain PJ Fleck was smiling aboard it. The rows were oaring, the oars were rowing, and you were happy to become first mate. And then the Badgers destroyed you. So I'll give you uh, the floor for a little bit here. <sighs> so I, we don't have to. Th- luckily, since this was essentially the end of the season, we're not going to talk about the old Gopher Bowl game. Um, no, I do not follow Gopher athletics all that closely. Uh, the way that I rationalize it in my mind is it's not like somebody jumping onto a pro team like a bandwagon. I literally gave tens of thousands of dollars of my future earnings to the University of Minnesota for the right to jump on and off whenever I want. So so when we found out that ESPN's college game day was coming to town and uh, my family is going to be in town the same weekend for Thanksgiving, my brother convinced me to get up at 4 a.m. to go stand out in the cold for six hours to uh, I don't know, I guess, enjoy the pageantry. And so that was super duper cool. And I I think, you know, I'm not a strong believer or strong detractor to PJ Fleck. I really don't feel all that much of a way about the row the boat thing. It's just, that's just his deal. Um, But but I I do want to say, even though the game was obviously awful and uh, not a lot of fun to watch, and I was able to miss the second half because I decided to walk the dog instead. um, (laughs) the the atmosphere on campus and the kind of excitement is something that I never experienced when I was a student at the U because uh, the football team and the basketball team for the most part sucked while I was there, which I think is a uh, running theme for most University of Minnesota graduates for the past six decades. So even though they got waxed by the Badgers yet again, uh, first or whatever, once more in a long, long line of that happening, the exception being last season. Uh, I thought it was cool regardless. And had I gone, like actually physically gone to the game and suffered through that, I'd be in a lot worse of a mood. But uh, overall, I, I don't know, good season. Uh, and and regardless of the final results, I think everybody can acknowledge that maroon and gold is a far superior color scheme than red and white for just general outfit wear, gear, whatever you want to name in terms of what you could put colors on, I'd say personally, in my opinion, superior makes everybody else look better uh, than red or white. So that's all I really have to say about it. Kyle, uh, thoughts on that last bit? <laughs> Kyle. All right. I already tweeted this, but 
wearing maroon and gold is basically a coward's way of avoiding being associated with McDonald's. So <laughs> there's no pride in that. Um, there I'm just happy that the Badgers won because I had said if you lose twice in a row to Minnesota, you have to fold the football team, give the money to women's volleyball, soccer, hockey, any other sport. Give it to the true winners. Um, you just can't lose Minnesota twice. Um, otherwise, I think I got most of my jokes off yesterday, so I don't have any more to follow up with. Here's the but thing. it was good. It was good because I took my dog out in the first, like right at halftime. So I missed I missed the touchdown pass that pretty much broke the game open for Wisconsin. So I was kind of bummed I missed that. Here's the thing, just the final note on the game. It's so much easier on my heart when I'm on everybody else's side. So like <laughs> the crossover between Bucks fans who are also Gopher fans is a lot smaller than Bucks fans that are also Badger fans. So it does pain me deep inside my heart that I have to be set against everybody who usually we're all in agreements uh, in terms of which team that we root for. So uh, painful as yesterday was, I'm happy to be back on the side of the good guys now that the Bucks season will continue to roll on. Yeah, and major kudos to you for going out for college game day. It, I did that once, and I think it, it was definitely not as cold as it was when you were there. But uh, it, by, by the time it was over, I wanted to get the heck out of there as fast as possible. Yeah, I would have been super upset had Lee Corso not picked the Gophers. Like, why did I, <laughs> why did I stand out here for six hours if he's going to just put on the Bucky the Badger head? So at least he paid off in that regards. Wonderful. Well, let's move on from uh, a team that inevitably disappoints every year to another team that kind of does inevitably disappoint at some point. Um, but to this point in this season, they have certainly not. The Bucks are on an 11 game winning streak after taking down the Charlotte Hornets uh, last Saturday evening. Uh, of course, we didn't record last week, but basically uh, if you did, all you missed was a, a series of wins for the Milwaukee Bucks. So last week, some of the notable scores were a 115 101 victory over the Bulls who appear to be imploding at an impressive, impressive level, uh, given Zach Levine and the rest of the team seems to have a, a, a revolt against Jim Boylan for the second time in two years. So that's cool. Uh, and then a 135-127 victory over Atlanta, a 137-129 victory over Portland, and a 104-90 to win over Detroit. Uh, before we move on to some of the bigger notable games from this week, uh, any any takeaways for you, Kyle, from those those four victories last week that Milwaukee had? Yeah, let's just say the Chicago Bulls are a mess, and I love it. Um, having practice on Thanksgiving Day is a bold choice, and if I was the players, I wouldn't show up. Um, so just want to get that out there. Uh, the win against Detroit, I didn't see the game. It seems like nothing significant happened. It's just one team was better than the other. Um, Portland, it was just more... Portland is just hit with injuries and they had Melo be their focal point of the offense, which is not ideal if you want to win basketball games in 2019. Um, and then the victory against the Hawks, while the score 135 to 127 makes it look like it was close, it, Milwaukee had this in the bag, I would say, relatively early until the full court press happened. And then the Bucks looked like a JV team turning the ball over and just fumbling everything and everyone around themselves. So that made it worse. But Eric Blumstone had a hell of a fourth quarter that game, for better and worse. He was scoring, I think he scored like 14 points or something in the fourth quarter, but also had a lot of questionable turnovers when said press happened. So the Atlanta game was definitely, the score makes it seem closer than it really was, but the other games were pretty ho-hum. Milwaukee's better than all these teams. Yeah, I tend to agree, especially that Portland win. I mean, that the they were just sinking jumper after jumper. 
looking really hot. The Detroit win, I feel every time I watch a Detroit game, I just can't help but feel so depressed for that fan base. I, they're like running out Christian Wood and Thon Maker. Tim Frazier made an appearance. Like they just feel like they have no direction at all. And I know Blake Griffin was missing for that game, but boy, I I just got to feel my heart goes out to them for the complete lack of direction that's going on over there. Uh, any takeaways for you, Riley? Uh, no, not too much. I think so. One agree on the Detroit point. It, it's weird because like they almost feel like they shouldn't even be a team, you know, like that's how long they've been just without purpose. And like, yeah, they got to the playoffs last year, but I mean, that was like a bastardized version. That's like classic late two thousands bucks get into the playoffs kind of situation. Like, okay, but you're going to get totally run out of the court on, you know, the first round of the playoffs. So I, I do feel bad for them as well. Hopefully one day they'll return to relevance just because you always, you, you know, as much as I enjoy central division teams, not being good, Every once in a while, teams deserve happiness like the Bucks did and we're experiencing right now. So hopefully Detroit gets that. But it's just kind of the games in general. I think especially last week or two weeks ago, I should say, what really jumped out to me was, like you guys both said, the Bucks were kind of far and away, like clearly the better team. But what kind of, not concerning per se, but what jumped out was how often, because the other team was shooting really, really well, the other team would get back within like, six, seven, eight points, and then the Bucks would be able to turn it on either defensively or offensively and just get like three buckets in a row and push the lead back out to double digits. And I think that was especially in the Portland game. I think that was a little bit in the Atlanta game as well, where, you know, it's like, okay, is Melo going to kind of go off here? And is that going to be sustained enough for like uh, CJ? Uh, why can't I remember his last name right now? It's really, what was that? McCollum. Yeah, thank you. Jeez. Wow. That's really embarrassing. That. I watch basketball guys, I swear. Um, I, I just think that was one thing where even though they got the four wins, it was like, hmm, are they quote unquote still playing with their food? And is that going to be an issue or should we take it as really a good sign? The fact that they're able to just kind of lackadaisical their way through a couple of possessions, then turn it back on and eventually get the win. And now they've won 17 games. So that was really out of two weeks ago. That was kind of the main thing that I came away with. Like, yes, they were wins, but they were wins against four teams that aren't all that good. And then they had this past week, which we can get into where I think there was a little bit more, especially the Charlotte game, the Utah game, there's a little bit more to kind of go off and be like, okay, there's some encouraging signs that they were able to respond to uh, different pressures or different situations and really kind of show out. Yeah, I totally agree. I think some of the elements and points that you were making there were in terms of playing with their food and having to come back from a team having a hot shooting night will certainly take part in the Atlanta and Cleveland games. But let's start with the Utah game, 122 to 118 win. Of course, the highlight from that game was Giannis's 50 points, 14 rebound, six assists night. No Rudy Gobert for Utah, which of course made it easier for Giannis to absolutely decimate Royce O'Neal and all the other guys that were trying to guard him on the inside. Utah had 21 three-pointers on the night. They were absolutely stroking it from deep, and yet the Bucks were still able to prevail. Kyle, what was sort of your big takeaway and observations from that game? Yeah, I think I was kind of laughing because there were some Jazz fans that were very salty about it, and they're like, well, if Gobert had played, Giannis would have had 50. And it's like, okay, fine. He would have had – Giannis would have had 40. Whatever, fine. We'll, we'll concede that point. But it was simply that Milwaukee could not get – any three-pointers to fall right away other than Wes Matthews. Um, Giannis had a second-most threes with three of eight from the field, which that says something. He did get to the free-throw line 19 times, which was good, but 
it was just the general ease that Milwaukee was able to kind of get its points compared to the Jazz, because I think the Bucks had 58 points in the paint. Um, they had 22 fast break points. They just they got out and they started running. And the Jazz, meanwhile, were just hitting three after three after three. And I think Bogdanovich had, you know, I think he had like four or five. You know, there, it just seemed like all these players, like Bogdanovich had five, Royce O'Neal had three, Mitchell, I think, had like three or four, Jeff Green, uh, Joe Ingles, like all those guys. And there were a lot of those shots were difficult shots. It's not like they're wide open. It's just that, you know, they were just getting hot. And it definitely got questionable at halftime. Like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen with Milwaukee. And then the, four, the third quarter happened. And, you know, the Bucks came out and scored 42 points. And it was kind of just after that, while they get close at times, it was just Giannis takeover. And how he was able to do it, just able to mix it in with driving to the hoop, dunking on people getting to the free throw line, hitting a clutch three when needed to, but also getting other players involved as well. You know, guys like Eric Bledsoe and Wes Matthews, who, and I think Wes deserves a lot of credit for this. Like in the third quarter, he was the guy hitting the shots. He was the guy getting out there. And Brooke Lopez, while he didn't shoot the ball well, defensively was kind of able to stymie Utah in the paint. So it was probably one of the best performances I've seen from Giannis. I don't want to say it's his best, but it's definitely top 10 and how he just controlled that game and, and sparked. And it wasn't even him that necessarily sparked that third quarter, but he was definitely the one that sparked the fourth quarter. Yeah. To further underline that point of Giannis uh, really pulling this team across the finish line along with Wes Matthews, some of the other shooting lines for guys. Brooke Lopez, just one for nine from the field, one for seven from three. He continues to really struggle to start this season from deep. Eric Bledsoe, five for 16. Yikes. Uh, Dante DiVincenzo, two for 10. And then Sterling Brown, two for nine. A couple guys on the bench did pretty well um, in terms of shooting. Ursan had, was four for five. Pat Connaughton was four for six. But really for this one, I, I totally agree with you, Kyle, that Giannis made this look like a complete domination of, of the tone of the game. He had complete control on the offensive end. He was knew exactly when he was going to pass. He knew exactly when he had a mismatch, putting up 31 shots and going 17 for 31 from the field is just a really impressive effort, especially considering some of those were threes. Uh, and I think Riley, it really felt like as this whole week has gone along and as these, these next games have gone along, especially with Chris Middleton out, it feels like Giannis is taking more and more control of setting the tone for how Milwaukee is going to uh, command the offensive end of the floor. Yeah, I think what really jumped out from the Utah game to me personally was it seems like, and we already kind of knew this was the case, but kind of piggybacking off, off of what you guys said, he's almost like a robot, like an AI machine learning when he faces opponents. And I think the Jazz, have we played the Bulls more than once? I would I would yeah. be curious to look at Giannis's stats in the first game facing a team versus the second game because – we all remember the first time, you know, a couple of weeks ago when the Bucks went out to Utah to play the Jazz. The first half, Giannis, I think he had two points total. Like he just, he could not get it going offensively. And then the second half, he comes out and he, I think he puts up like 26, 27 points. Like we we saw that he is capable of doing this against the Jazz. And then he comes into this game and it's not like there's a slow start. He immediately, he kind of, like you said, he knows the tendencies. He kind of knows what exactly looks he should be going for that's going to work against this defense, especially... Uh, you know, if Rudy Gobert's out there, not out there, that even changes things up even more, makes it a little bit easier for him inside. But then, like you said, the ability to kind of recognize then when to make the pass, uh, when to kind of emphasize going for the rebound, things like that, where 
he seems to have already taken in all the lessons from a couple of weeks ago against the Jazz and then morphed that into something even more potent this past game where he ends up scoring 50 points. And if that's going to be the case, that just distills down how valuable it is. Obviously, having a guy like him, like he's not going to get 50 all that often because that's just not his game necessarily. But he was able to anchor the team and survive this storm where, I mean, the, the Jazz aren't a joke like they're they're a legit team and yet all he all Giannis really needed was like one other starter to play well and that was Wes Matthews and via that they were able to do enough to kind of weather the storm and get the win so I think yes he seems Giannis seems more mature but even more dangerously he seems to be taking on mid-season here a better understanding of his opponent's tendencies and maybe that's both specific opponents and just his growth but either way i think it's really encouraging just for where this team will possibly go especially in the playoffs where last year we saw him maybe struggle a little bit game over game against that team like the raptors to try and figure out what what's the key to unlock this we've already seen him against a couple of opponents like either mid-game or during a second game like okay i know exactly what to do here and i'm just going to do it and totally take this team out so I, I would say that was the biggest thing that came the biggest lesson that came from me out of the Utah game, we'll kind of see as the year goes on, we face opponents more and more, but uh, you know, he's just, he's a force of nature right now. And it's, it's amazing to watch. And uh, you know, there's really no way to really put it into words what this guy can do. Yeah. I think the other big thing, Kyle, of course, from that game is the zero turnovers for Giannis and just one personal foul, uh, personal foul for the, this, these past week's games, he's only had uh, one in that Utah game. At five in the Atlanta game, which isn't great, but then zero against Cleveland and just one against Charlotte. Uh, it, piggybacking off what Riley was saying in terms of him trying to sort of learn from his mistakes and, and improve as, as the season has gone on, absolutely heartening to see those personal fouls decrease a little bit and the zero turnovers are fantastic. Yeah, and I was going to say in the first matchup against the Jazz, Giannis had five turnovers and he fouled out in that game. So just from staying on the court was a substantial improvement. And also with the Bucks not having George Hill, he kind of had the responsibility of being that playmaker since Eric Bledsoe was struggling in that game. I think he led the team with six assists. And again, no George Hill didn't help. And also Milwaukee didn't play any center. They didn't play either the Lopez twins that much. I mean, Brooke played 33 minutes, but there was a stretch when the Bucks were at its best where Giannis was at the five, but he was not only at the five, but he was the playmaker as well. And because I think Robin Lopez only had three minutes of play. And besides that, I mean, Arizona had 16 minutes, but a lot of the going with a traditional center didn't really happen in the key moments of that third quarter. And even in the fourth quarter, it didn't take until near the end when Brooke Lopez was defensively just a rock. So how that I don't know if that's going to be a continuing theme or if that was just, you know, they didn't have Utah was going small without Rudy Gobert. The Bucks will also go small if that was part of it. But it is something to look forward moving down the season just to see if the Bucks are going to counter teams that go small by having Giannis at the five or if they're going to stick with Brooke Lopez there and just, you know, force teams to beat them at the three point line. That'll be the interesting part as well. And I, it's just kind of ridiculous how well the Jazz shot the three ball. I mean, to shoot that well and still lose. Sometimes you got to be lucky. And I think the Bucks showed that a couple shots didn't fall. And for them, that's all they needed to get the win. 
here's if i can jump in real quick uh sort of related to the utah game what kyle just said about utah shooting so well one thing that has been a season-long issue and i'm curious how you guys feel about it is just how well opponent teams are shooting from three now there's a certain percentage of that that is just kind of luck like whether or not the team makes or misses a shot but uh, so far through the season the bucks have the third worst three point opponent three point percentage in the league so the opponents are making 38 percent of threes uh, and they also rank dead last in the amount of made threes in the number of threes taken by opponents overall so i i just it's one thing that kind of is a cause for concern and we even saw it against charlotte where even though the Bucks ended up boat racing them, there were times where it's like, okay, they're not even really actively defending the three. And I can't tell if that's a schematic issue, if that's an effort issue or where that's coming from. And I think that's probably the area we can circle and say, this is why all these games against kind of mediocre opponents end up looking close or being close for way longer than they need to be because for whatever reason, the Bucks are giving up a lot of, and teams are making a lot of threes. So I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that's something that out of the Utah game, uh, out of the Cleveland game, because I think Cleveland shot 50% from three as well. And I think Charlotte and Atlanta for this past week's game, they didn't shoot nearly as well, but still it's an area that I'm worried about and kind of brings us back to like the worst days of the kid kid era where it was like, okay, and there goes the three, and there goes the three, and there goes the three. So I'm not sure if you guys feel anything specific about that, but I just wanted to make a note about it. Yeah, well, looking it up on nba.com and their stats page and for wide open threes which is you know the closest defender beads more than six feet away and the bucks were third and three point attempts allowed against them which is averaging about 18.6 a game and teams are hitting 40 percent which that's not good that's the third worst in the league and then when you look a little bit tighter it gets to like four to six feet i think they were like i think that was around 13 attempts per game that's still at 39 percent and then when it gets relatively tight which is like two to four feet i think they're still leading the league and teams are shooting about six percent of those not six percent six attempts and they're only shooting 24 27 so it's kind of like the bucks are allowing a lot of these wide open threes i mean between the four feet and larger i think it's still almost 30 percent like 30 to 40 percent of the opponent's three-point shots so if you're allowing that many open three-pointers and they're hitting them that's going to happen and i don't know how much of it is the defense not being fully engaged how much of it is them diving a little bit too much to try and help when there's a pick and roller or you know i know like the utah game they just they're able to scheme they're able to scheme their guys to be open so utah is an exception but all these other teams it's kind of more I think the Bucks are trying to do too much in stopping any rim or paint shots, but then they're kind of scrambling a lot of these wide open threes. So that's what I observed. And when I looked at some of the stats, it kind of made sense. I'm not too concerned about it because, you know, if you're going to, sometimes games are going to change. We saw what happened with Toronto with Fred Van Vliet was hitting seven to nine from three. And, you know, that's going to happen. And in the inverse, you can get a game where someone can shoot, you know, two of seven, two of eight. It's just that's just how the three point is. And with today's NBA, everyone's going to take shots. It's just a matter of how many of them are going to shoot it at a respectable rate. Yeah, I think the one I think the one thing that does differentiate it a little bit from the kid era is if you're looking at corner threes allowed, the Bucks are like right around the middle of the pack on cleaning the glass. Like they're ranked 18th in terms of the amount of corner threes allowed, and like kids' offense would just bleed the corner mm-hmm. three pointers when t- when t- defenses were over rotating. So. That's kind of heartening that they're not giving up that 
that prime shot location. And we there was a lot of articles about this last year about how the Bucks were on clean glass itself kind of selectively allowing who would be able to shoot the threes and focusing on only allowing above the, above the arc, above the break threes and that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's a really interesting gambit. I think we learned Mitchell Maurer actually touched on this on his last 10 next 10 uh, plug for this on, on brewhoop.com. Go read that article. But the idea of, being able to take away everything is just not feasible. Mike Budenholzer has made a calculated choice to say we are going to be the absolute most devastating rim defensive team that you can find in the league. And that is, you know, those are incredibly high percentage shots. There's not a lot of variance when it comes to shots at the rim. For three-pointers, there's a significant amount of variance. That's why you see the Bucks, you know, sometimes win by 40 like they did last night and then sometimes win by, you know, 10 to five to 10 when they're facing teams that are shooting. I, I think this last week was actually really, really instructive. This streak of teams that have been shooting really well, uh, especially for me personally, who is getting, you know, it, it's sometimes it's hard to back out and see the forest through the trees when it comes to a team that's on an 11 game winning streak. But looking at these teams that are shooting really, really well from three pointers, we're all thinking, when is it going to end? Well, in the playoffs, this is what a four-game sample size could be. And when you're facing a teams that aren't you know, Portland with nobody, Utah obviously would be a team that put, could potentially prevail in the end. But teams like Atlanta and Cleveland, if a teams are shooting that well in the playoffs, it's possible that it might just not be Milwaukee's night if they're not able to do the other things that make them successful, like finish at the rim and get open shots for their other guys. So this was an instruct instructive stretch for me to see. I'm really glad that the Bucks win, but it's, it was also a good reminder that there are these periods where other teams can get hot or a team can get hot for a very short period of time. And the Bucks may not be able to prevail if the teams aren't just bottom seller dwellers of the East. Well, and I think kind of piggybacking off of that, it, I agree that that seems to be what they're going for. And Kyle, your observation that they seem to really be hedging the interior defense, like even against Atlanta. And I know Trey Young is obviously a really, really good player and he's he's really dangerous when the ball is in his hands. But there are a lot of times where he would be driving to the basket and like four Bucks defenders would kind of key in and fall into the paint with him. And obviously that makes it difficult for him to find a pass out. But that's like you're really, really hedging the interior defense. But if that's going to be the case, and I think generally we can all agree that that's probably going to be the system that they're going to go with, then what we're going to look for on the other end is can the Bucks do everything offensively to be able to outlast that. And so far through 20 games, they've been able to, and all credit to guys like Wes Matthews, who's kind of, he started rounding into form, you know, Robin Lopez, he had a good game against Charlotte. Um, Chris has got a little bit of load management. It obviously also Giannis going on to a whole nother level, a whole nother level offensively. That seems to have offset a lot of the issues. And I'm not sure if there are any other teams in the East necessarily who would be able to have so many outlier shooting performances and be able to equally dominate defensively in the way that Toronto did last season. So I think that's just something to keep an eye on and something that's kind of interesting. But it, it does make it, you know, a little bit heartburn inducing when you're watching a game you're like, God, we're really giving up, you know, 23 pointers to Cleveland right now. Like, it's, that just happens to be the nature of it. And luckily we're so good offensively that it ends up not really mattering in the end, but you know, something to keep in mind. Yeah. We looked at a lot of big picture stuff. Of course, the Bucks won 111, 102 against Atlanta. Giannis went off for 30 points, 10 rebounds, four assists. Um, our old friend Jabari, 33 points in that game. Kyle, did you notice anything in particular from that Atlanta win? Not really. Jabari just was hitting buckets and Milwaukee, 
just I, I don't know. That was a weird game just because I didn't know how long Jabari was going to stay hot. And he was the only guy initially that was doing anything for Atlanta. And I it was a big game because Chris Middleton was coming back. So trying to get Chris Middleton back in it. And I don't know. It was just a weird game just because Milwaukee started off fast leading, I think, like 33 to 15 or 17 in the first quarter. Again, Atlanta could have hit a shot of that wasn't Jabari Parker. And then the second quarter happens and Atlanta scores 42 points. And I was like, okay, well, this is odd. This is, it was just a weird game just because it seems like all those threes that weren't falling in the first quarter were falling in the second quarter for the Hawks. And then the third and the second half, it was kind of more of Trey Young was starting to get hot and he was the only one. Jabari was starting to cool down. No one else really was contributing. While for Milwaukee, it was. Brooke Lopez was somewhat able to find a shooting stroke again, but it didn't. No one really. Chris Middleton looked good when he came back, but how Milwaukee won that game, it was simply Giannis is better than everyone else. And that's really all there was to it in the second half. The first half was just, you know, shooting variances. It'll happen. Milwaukee did not shoot the ball well at all. I think they only. I think they shot him to 30% for three. So. I don't know what this team, it's not like the Hawks shot that much better. It just seemed like when the Hawks were hitting shots, it was just back to back to back to back that, like I said, in the second quarter. Yeah. Go ahead, Riley. Well, here was, here was my takeaway, both from the Atlanta game and from this past week in general is yes, Giannis is really dominant. The guy that I was kind of both kind of impressed and also I wouldn't say worried, but just kind of keep an eye on was Eric Bledsoe in the way that he played. So like against Atlanta where Trey Young is a notoriously horrendous defender, like just one of the league's worst defenders. And yet Eric only gets nine points, but he's able to offset that by ended up getting 10 assists. And just for the past four games, just his per game averages. So he averaged 8.5 points, 7.5 assists, 3.8 rebounds, and only 1.5 turnovers. And so what I was impressed with, both in the Atlanta game and just the week in general for Eric Bledsoe when we're looking at him specifically is we're seeing where in the past it was like, okay, if he's not scoring, he's not this really amazing passer. And so that's going to be able to kind of offset any sort of declines in his scoring output. We saw in the Atlanta game that he was able to key up the offense and where even though he wasn't directly the guy that was smashing the defense and scoring, he was doing enough and passing well enough to be able to get his teammates into position to be able to score and help kind of boost up the offense from there. So that from the Atlanta game, just because that was the most drastic version of that, but kind of the week in general, I think, you know, whether or not Eric will be able to keep up that kind of, you know, kind of passing streak, I doubt it because that's way above his career norms, but to be able to see him operate and contribute in a way that's a little bit different offensively than the way that we expect him to, especially with Chris not out there, uh, really encouraging in my opinion. Yeah, I do kind of think that was an interesting theme from basically the last 10 games. So with Chris Middleton out, I mean, you look at the teams, it, it's essentially been Giannis taking the brunt of the scoring punch needing to do that. And then after that, here's sort of the point totals for guys. So this is basically since Chris Middleton was out and for the last 10 games. So it's Eric Bledsoe at 15.2 points per game. And like you were saying, Riley, sort of offset by his 6.4 assists per game just 0.6 turnovers during that time. So he's trying to sprinkle in a little bit of everything else for him. Uh, but then you go down the scoring ledger, it's Brooke Lopez is next at 11.1 points per game. And then it's Dante DiVincenzo at yes. 10.5 points per game. We'll get into him. There we go. Yes. Uh, <laughs> then it's Wes Matthews at 10.4, George Hill at 9.3, Ursan at 7.9. Uh, 
DJ Wilson only played four games, but he's next. And then uh, Connaughton and Lopez are both tied. It's Robin Lopez tied at 6.1. So Sterling Brown is at six points. So what, what struck me whenever I kept looking at the block, box score, if you just take a glance, it's, you know, Giannis gets his 30 points. And then there's maybe one or two games where Rick Bledsoe, I believe, had 28 or 31 points. But other than that, it's been almost everyone has been contributing. And there's maybe four or five players who get to between 10 and 15 or 10 and 18 points. It's really been, once you get past Giannis, an across-the-board balanced scoring effort. Yeah, it's and I think even well we can talk about the cleveland the charlotte game that's even more exemplified by the charlotte game and a little bit weird because almost all the fourth quarter and parts of the third were garbage time but every single guy who played like literally everybody who suited up played double digit minutes and i don't think every single person scored double digits but it got pretty damn close like it could be wrong i have to go check the box score but we're seeing in a way where last year is like okay one of these three guys Giannis is going to go off you hope one of Chris or Eric goes off and hopefully cross your fingers. Maybe the other of Eric or Chris goes off or you have enough from like the other guys like Brooke Lopez is an outlier game. Whereas this year, offensively, it seems a lot more balanced, which I think is probably obviously really, really good for the regular season. I'm curious how that's going to look in the postseason when teams have more time to kind of plan around that. Like, is it going to have to revert back to the system of last year where it's like these three top line guys are going to be the ones that get you over the top, probably going to be the case, but you're right that so far, even though Giannis has been out of this world, we've been able to see other guys step up in a way that has helped paper over any sort of shortcomings from somebody else. And so last year where the top three are so heavily dependent, not so much this year, which I think is a credit to John Horse and it, especially Bud with how many different guys he's been playing and how deep of a rotation he's played to continue to produce at such a high level is pretty impressive. Yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of takeaways from the Cleveland game. You know, they shot, like we were saying this whole past week, they shot incredibly hot from deep, 17 of 34 from three. Uh, the Bucks were able to limit how many free throws they got, just 10 attempts on the night. Bucks had 23 on the night. Bucks won the paint battle by only 10 points. Seemed like sort of another example of, of what's been going on this week where, you know, Cleveland got a hop, but the Bucks were able to outlast them. Was there anything you had from that game, Kyle, before we move on to the, the Charlotte win? That Cleveland third quarter was – that was – if there's an outlier performance, that had to have been it. They were, what, 15 of 20 for three in the second half, and that included 10 of 15 in the third quarter alone, so 30 points just from threes. And Milwaukee didn't help itself with his poor shot selection, but that was – you know, when teams – that's just – I don't know. I was watching that game. That was just an annoying one because all the other games is Milwaukee's doing what it needs to do, and it's fine. Everything's going to balance itself out. But at, with how Cleveland was shooting, I was like, I don't know if Cleveland's going to miss. They just – I don't know if they're going to miss. It's not like Milwaukee was defending that particularly poorly. It's just – it just seemed like every shot that went up was going in. And Milwaukee's offense – was still doing its job, and it's not like they were sloppy like in other times when they rush three pointers or they're turning over the ball too many times. It was just, it just was one of those. This is really, really annoying, and I don't know when it's going to stop kind of games. But that's really the only observation I had from the Cleveland game, and I guess the Atlanta game was kind of the same. Charlotte was, I was joking that if at halftime that Charlotte's going to come back and be within five at the end of the third quarter, just because of how things had been going for the Bucks the previous week. Yeah, well, yeah, that uh I mean this was a great example of what happens when the other team isn't necessarily having an outlier shooting performance. Just 33% from three for 
Charlotte Bucks shoot 45.5% from three, uh, and they have a ho-hum win by 41 points. Um, it's very impressive. I mean, we saw a lot of these types of wins last year where the Bucks would just have a torrential downpour of three-pointers, and then the other team just can't catch up. Some of the box scores, 26 points, nine rebounds, four assists for Giannis in ding just 19 minutes. And then uh, 15 points, four rebounds, three assists for Chris. Robin Lopez in what seemed like a direct uh, attack back at Riley Feldman for calling him washed, uh, 13.6 <laughs> rebounds, four assists, three blocks, including three of five from deep for Rolo and Wes Matthews as well. 14 points, three rebounds. Uh, Riley, just a dominating performance from start to finish. Yes, it was. And I, I do believe I could be wrong. I'd have to go back, check the tape and slow it down. I believe after one of the threes, when Robin Lopez was doing his T celebration, I think I saw him mouth the words and I'm, I'm going to censor it, but I think he said, F Riley F. I believe that's what he said <laughs> as he was tipping the glass back. Now, now I think you're right that it was completely dominating. And I, I was a little worried about this one just because Charlotte isn't nearly as jokey as everybody was thinking they were going to be this season, um, which is probably a credit to their coaching staff. But, you know, you get off this really, really long win streak. You have another four-game week. It's back-to-back, uh, -back, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, for the first time in what feels like a really long time, the Bucks just really, from start to finish, totally dominated team. Now, at the half, it was close. I, did the, I think the Bucks, yeah, they had the lead at the half. It was still, like, relatively competitive, but... You know, instead of the usual third quarter where it's like, oh, we're kind of lackadaisical, don't really have a lot of energy going on right now, blah, blah, blah. They came out, they just totally dominated. Like, you know, there's no doubt about it. And so what what was really impressive, like you said, was it wasn't so much, I mean, Giannis, obviously, you know, in 19 minutes, he has crazy stat line. Eric, again, like I said earlier, this game, he only has two points, but he has 10 assists to go along with those two points. So he's still finding a way to contribute. But it was everybody else. It was Robin Lopez subbing in and playing like not a, a perfect FX simile of his brother, but stepping up in a way that I would not have expected based on the rest of the season and functioning on both ends in both a traditional center offensively and also by spacing the floor. So this is, this was like the ideal Robin Lopez game. And you even see somebody like DJ Wilson, where he gets some minutes and he takes three, uh, eight, three pointers, makes three of them. It seemed like everybody it's it, pretty much everybody. I mean, what did they end up going 20 for 44? Everybody seemed to have been in a good flow offensively. And you kind of turn that into a poor shooting night from Charlotte. And, you know, again, pretty good defense from Milwaukee kind of helping them along the way. But I'm not sure if there's much to take away from it other than when the Bucks really want to put it on a team, they can really put it on a team. Yeah, Charlotte, of course, Devontae Graham was doing his best sort of Kemba Walker facsimile. Actually, he was he looked pretty good uh, for them. But other than that, I mean, they just got roasted inside. I mean, Cody Zeller was getting beat by Dragon Bender uh, in garbage time. It's just a t it's just a tough look when that's your team. But I mean, everyone on the team who played last night got to double digit minutes. Huge night in terms of load management to give all these guys a big night off after having playing having to play the second night of a back to back. Anything else from the Charlotte game that you want to talk about, Kyle? Uh no. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. All right. Let's move on to our next segment. It's time, guys. It's been such a long time coming, but it's I just want to say these words right now. It's time for Dante's Inferno. This power, Dante. We can use it together. I think I can be a professional basketball player. 
And this week, guys, Dante DiVincenzo, he's been in the starting lineup for 10 games. Even though Chris Middleton came back, you could tell Bud just wanted Dante to stay in the starting lineup. I mean, it's clear that this guy, the number 17 pick in 2018, the 22.8 years old combo guard out of Villanova, is just an absolute monster. Oh, my God. He's averaging, over, like I said, over his last 10, he's averaging an incredible 10.5 points per game and 31.8% from three, which is – Lower than I thought, actually, based on how this season's been going. But he's been he's been he's had a couple dry spells from three. It seems like lately. Uh, but the crux of this Dante this Dante's Inferno should really just be talking about um, Riley. How uh, how soon is it going to be before Chris Middleton is in the starting lineup again? Well, I think before I discuss that, let's just go through those per 36 uh, averages here real quick, just to really <laughs> exemplify how amazing he's been. So per 36, Dante this year, 14.7 points. 7.4 rebounds, which is impressive for a guy who's like, what, six foot four, uh, given his size and the way that he plays, obviously continues to dominate those offensive rebounds. 2.6 assists, 2.4 steals. He's been amazing defensively a lot of the time. And like you said, that three-point percentage, almost a, hot, a, a whopping 10 percentage points better than it was last year. So returning to your original question about when Chris Middleton returned, I can't imagine just that much longer until he's back out there because I think – as much fun as Dante is and as good as he is when he's out there with Giannis, I believe when I was doing some research on the Brooke Lopez piece I did last week, it, it if surprisingly enough, in terms of like two man pairings that are really dominant, Giannis and Dante, when they're together, I'd have to pull the numbers back up. The net rating those two guys have when they're on the floor together is unbelievable. Like it's, I believe it, if not team leading one of the top pairings on the entire team. So that being said, as much fun as Dante is, as useful as he is all around, I think he's probably still better served maybe being a sixth man. And it could be, I'm not sure if it's going to be taking over for like George Hill's sixth man role, but as this is again, the perennial problem with Dante, he's good at a lot of different things. I'm not sure if he's excellent at any one thing. And if that's going to be the case, that's a little bit more difficult for us to carve out a specific role where, okay, George Hill, he comes out, he's going to be the second PG because he's the second most competent ball handler slash offensive facilitator. Dante's a good passer, but I'm not sure if he's at the same level as a George Hill, for example. And like Dante, he's a really good rebounder. Do you really need your six foot four combo guard doing a lot of the rebounding? Probably not. Yes. So <laughs> that's true. I mean, it's a lot of fun. And obviously it makes things a lot easier for going into transition when your guards are the guys who are picking it up. But I, I just think while I would like to declare Dante the sixth man of the year contender, especially if he goes back to the bench and kind of takes on that role, what's what's most heartening is the fact that he hasn't had to really set out any games because of foot injuries. I think we should give a lot of credit to, I'm not sure how much credit to give Budenholzer because it took him a while to actually give him the minutes, but since the Orlando game a couple of, you know, I think a month ago or so, uh, Dante's never really been pulled back onto the bench. He's averaging 21 minutes per game so far this season. He's played 17 games, 10 more, and already have matched last season's total. So I understand the excitement. I share the excitement. I'm not sure if he's meant or destined to forever be the starter. Uh, maybe maybe that's just going to be the way it is, and we can kind of get into that when we talk about Chris Middleton. But overall, a, a deserving Dante's Inferno, especially the past two weeks, but a season overall way, way better than anybody could have guessed. And – 
guys, I think he's healthy. He might be 100%, 1,000% healthy. I, I could be wrong, but I'm just getting that vibe right now. <laughs> I I think he could be because he's certainly got a healthy number of deflections per 36, guys. He's ranked seventh in the league in deflections per 36, 4.5, and loose balls recovered per 36, 2.2. So clearly he's hustling his butt off. They've been calling out that loose balls recovered stat a lot on broadcasts, it seems like, lately. Uh, but – Kyle, let's definitely get into the Chris Middleton aspect of this. He's come back. He's been coming off the bench. He's kind of just looked like Chris Middleton, basically, just playing less minutes. He'll he'll get the ball. He'll post up the guy at the elbow. He'll make his two-point turnaround shots. He'll find some guys on some nice assists. He might drive to the basket occasionally. Uh, I'm guessing you're probably in the same boat as Riley, that he should uh, probably replace Dante in the starting lineup sooner rather than later. Yeah, I can see him coming back for that L.A. Clippers game maybe just because I think the next two games are against the Knicks and some other scrubs. So you could ease him back into it it, while Dante can start. Chris Milton can get up to that 25 to 30 minutes area. I He has looked good, and I think Riley was saying it last night to us. He he looks slow, but he's always looked slow. So I don't know how much (laughs) of that is. And it was weird when he came back. It was two and a half weeks after his injury. That was supposed to be three or four weeks. So how much of it was he 100% healthy. I don't think the staff was going to rush him back considering how Milwaukee had been playing in his absence. So it's not like he was, it's not like last year with Dante where you could probably question maybe he came back too soon. It seems like Chris Milton is healthy. He's finding his rhythm with shooting. Um, So I would say if he's not starting by the LA Clippers game, I would be surprised. Um, Dante deserves a huge shout out uh, just because he always seems to find a way to help the Bucks win. Whether it was hitting, you know, five of ten from the field against Atlanta, great, or against Portland when he's shooting the ball well, or against Cleveland in the first half where he hits three threes, but more importantly, he gets those clutch rebounds at the end and scrambles for the loose ball. Without then, that kills another twenty four seconds off the clock for Milwaukee. So that game was just making plays to help Milwaukee win, and he's going to be, you know, let's just get him going for that most improved player and six man of the year. Let's get that ready. I'm pumped for it. Can't wait for that acceptance speech. Um, but yeah, Chris Melton probably will be back so at, for this week's games, at least. He, here's just to jump in on the Chris Middleton back in the starting lineup. Here's the one thing that I would give. I'm not going to give the Chris Middleton haters or the Chris Middleton lovers, but the past 10 games without him and then having him back, it is a little bit jarring seeing like, the way that Dante and everybody else around Giannis plays offense and the way that Chris plays offense, because it's not a throwback per se, but it's so radically different from the way pretty much everybody else on the floor plays because there's a lot more isolation. There's a lot more, I wouldn't say standing around the ball, but there's a lot more holding onto the ball than is necessarily the case with a lot of other players on the team. And so if you're concerned or you're thinking maybe we're best suited kind of getting into a flow with guys like Dante out there and then maybe working Chris in over time or the opposite, having Chris being a starter, but then having him being, I think Bud has tried this a couple of times, but seeing if he works better offensively papering over the gaps when it's just subunits plus Chris, for example. So that that is one concern and that, that's kind of related to my, like he moves like a 35 year old, except he's 28. Like he, he's just kind of a methodical, slow player. And that's so radically different from the way that Dante plays or even the rest of the team, like even Wes, you know, Wes, who is actually 33 and aging, like he, he still plays a little bit more dynamically in terms of like the speed or 
decision to try and drive for the hoop, even if it's not successful every time versus somebody like Chris, which is just totally different. And that total difference has its pros and that it gives the offense a different look, but it also has the cons and that it can kind of gum up the offense a little bit if it's not going all that well. Yeah. I'd say probably a counterpoint to that is I feel like one of the huge points of emphasis at this off season seemed like it was the bucks trying to find new ways to run their offense, new looks for their offense, especially after what happened last year in the playoffs. And certainly Chris Middleton was available and, was part of the reason that the team got gummed up. But I think it's nice to have that extra element that you could be able to go to a guy to try and get a bucket because Lord knows people, teams are going to throw incredible amounts of, of resources at Giannis as he's trying to get to the bucket. So you're going to need a guy like Chris Middleton as a release valve because some of these guys probably aren't going to be able to make shots in the playoffs eventually uh, for one game or another. Another big thing is if you're looking at just the five-man lineups and granted the sample sizes are still very small on these, but the new starting lineup with DiVincenzo inserted is almost at the same amount of minutes as the old one was with Chris Middleton at this point, 117 to 101. Uh, the net rating for the Middleton lineup is 21.4. Net rating for the DiVincenzo starting lineup is 9.6. You obviously want your team to get out and win a game and get a huge lead with the starters. And then the bench, basically, you kind of hold on until you can get the starters in and, and get some more points. So uh, a couple other points in the ledger for uh, Chris Middleton getting back in that starting lineup. That and the fact that, you know, everybody loves Dante and it's, it's amazing that he's, he seems to have figured out the three point shot, but you do have to kind of also look at, give a nod to the fact that Chris has been, you know, a 37 plus percent shooter for almost his entire career. And, you know, as good as Dante has been from three and as helpful as that has been this season, you know, he did, he was in the twenties last year and, you know, maybe this is now the new norm for him, but you do have to wonder, given the small sample, how sustainable is that? It looks good so far, but there's definitely a lot more reliability and a lot more of a track record with Chris's success than there is for Dante. hundred percent. All right. Before we go to an ad, uh, Riley, I'd like you to answer for the Wes washed watch segment uh, answer for Wes suddenly coming alive as well as Robin Lopez. Yeah, this is this is a really brutal segment because <laughs> it, had we like recorded a week ago, I would have been on thin ice and drowning in the middle of the lake. So so far, uh, not looking good. At least this past week, um, Wes Matthews he ended up going ahead and over the past two weeks, really upping his production, his uh, percentages both from the floor. So fifty percent overall, forty eight point four from three a uh, 100% from the free throw line. He's uh, averaged 10 points over the past, I want to say it was the past week. I have to recall which number that I pulled these up. But more importantly, he's increased his overall three-pointed percent above career averages. And now he's at 38.3, which, you know, when you look at the shot type selection, whether that be, you know, tight coverage, open coverage, cat and shoot, off the dribble, whatever it is, he's seen an increase in all of those. And so, that's directly tied to him being a more valuable player. And so I have to STFU about West this week. Maybe not washed. Maybe he just, uh, maybe he got back into form. And then same thing with Robin, especially yesterday was the height of it, but the entire week generally played pretty well in different roles, whether that be in the starting role, kind of papering over for Brooke or whether that be, playing on the defensive end and not totally getting burned. Uh, so I have to give a shout out to Robin as well. He's looked a lot better. The one guy I do have to worry about a little bit is my man, Kyle Korver. Uh, is, should this be Kyle Korver washed watch? <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. While he's still shooting pretty well from three overall, 
I'm a little concerned about the fact that he looks every bit of the 38 that he is, especially defensively. And it's just, there are times offensively where you see him, all he should be doing offensively is get the ball, take the three. If it's, if it's not going to be there, pass to somebody else and try to start it all over again. There have been a couple of times there's like, why, why is Kyle Korver deciding to dribble there and then try to pass out or like make a play at the rim? Like that's just, it, it's, it's not happening right now. And whereas I was kind of thinking, and I think a lot of people thought this, you get Kyle Korver in and even if he is a total train wreck defensively, you hope you're able to hide him. I think we're probably close, if not past the point of being able to effectively hide Kyle Korver defensively where in a playoff series, they're not going to just completely kill him every single time out. And so I, I think we might have to, for like the third time already this season, change it from West washed, washed watch over to Kyle washed watch. I'm not sure how you guys feel about that. Yeah. I don't know either just because it's kind of difficult because we know Kyle Korver is there to shoot threes and make threes. Him doing extra stuff is 100% unnecessary and should not be happening, but we already know he's old, so it's kind of tough. I also am going to take a giant L on the Robin Lopez is terrible side of it just because (laughs) I was one of his largest critics, and he rightfully shut me up yesterday. But I guess if we had to pick, I guess Kyle Korver would be the one to pick on. Otherwise, maybe... I don't know, because like Brooke Lopez, while his shooting's been bad, his defense has been fantastic. And Eric Bledsoe hasn't scored that well, but his playmaking has been good. So maybe Ursan, I guess, would be the next target, but he shot the ball pretty well recently. So yeah, I guess Kyle Korver is the next target for now until Ursan goes through another slump again. Here's the thing. Here's the thing with Ursan. When you've put in 30 years for an organization, you're above reproach, in my opinion. So I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna criticize Ursan, especially because this is the typical Ursan case, isn't it, gentlemen? He'll have a really bad start to the year, and then February, March comes around, and he turns into a god again. So I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna wait for Ursan until he actually when when his season actually starts, because right now this is all an extended preseason for him. When you're 53. And you you're really 32 and you're still out there taking charges. I mean, you deserve all the kind of respect in the world. And I don't think Ursan should ever be allowed to go on washed watch um, until he has like some sort of spell where he shoots like over 25, like he did last year. Uh, all right. So it sounds like we've settled on Kyle Korver is, is officially on washed watch right now. I, I think I would agree with that. It's just, you know, this is kind of like where it was with Wes a couple of weeks ago and credit to Wes. He's been able to, make other types of shots, whether it be driving to the rim, even though it's still not like all that great. Uh, it still seems a little stilted, but it, it seems a little bit more effective. Whereas where I was demanding West, just do like this single thing that you're here to do. This should even be more so for Kyle. And if he's doing anything with the ball besides shooting it or passing it immediately, I think it's a waste of possession. So that's, that's my concern. And, and on top of that, we're running him out there for like, a lot more minutes than I think anybody would have expected given his age. Like he's already, what's his total for this season? Let me pull it up here. Probably too much. Yeah. He's got 236 minutes already, which is not like a lot, a lot, but that's, that's more than I would have anticipated. He's averaging, I believe 16 minutes uh, or 14.8 minutes a game. That's way more than I figured he would. And I thought it would get, it was going to be like Sterling Brown's going to get a lot of those kinds of like backup three minutes or backup forward minutes or wing minutes, whatever you want to consider them. And instead, we're getting 
quite a bit of Kyle Korver early season minutes. That's something I'm a little concerned about as well. Maybe they're just riding him into the dust and they're going to get rid of him in the middle of the season, but it just seems like strange strategy on Bud's behalf. Yeah, well, we'll have to see if uh, if if the minute load starts to weigh on him and he, he stays in washed watch for a while. But for now, we're going to take a quick ad break. And on the other side, we're going to do rapid fire questions and sort of touch on some miscellaneous topics, including the return of film review, fountain pen fodder and vulture talk. So stay tuned. All right, we are back and it's time, guys. It's time for rapid fire questions. You have told me I am the person asking rapid fire questions this week. So I've prepped them for you. And Kyle, I'm going to have you answer first on all of these, okay? All right. All right, first one. Favorite school lunch growing up? I was a big Lunchables fan. What about What about hot lunch, like at school? Oh, the hot lunch? Okay. Um, if you nuggets. say turkey and gravy, right? Okay. <laughs> I thought Chicken you were going to say turkey and Chicken gravy. nuggets were the big day. And there was a day where they had like a large cookie. And we called it Big Cookie Day. It was always on Wednesday. So Chicken Nuggets and Big Cookie Day. Riley? Chicken Nuggets is a really good shout-out. I'm going to say uh, mine was the nachos, actually. Uh, the pizzas usually sucked. The hamburgers usually sucked. But uh, the nachos, they would give us, like, I mean, I have no idea, nor do I want to know where the uh, jalapenos they got came from. But uh, generally speaking, they were quite tasty. So I always vote nachos for me. Okay. Um Worst Bucks loss of your life? Like in person or just overall? Overall. Oh, I'm going to go game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals in 2001 because I truly believe that the Bucks would win it all. And I was nine years old. And my dad would, my dad and I were ready to go downtown to buy tickets for the finals at the Bradley Center. And when we found out they lost, I'm pretty sure I cried enough times in my lifetime. So that, for me... I just distinctly remember crying a lot. Uh, my answer is a little <laughs> bit different. <laughs> I, uh, my family was never big Bucks fans, so we we and we only moved up to Wisconsin in like two thousand one. So I wasn't even a Bucks fan until like the Fear the Deer year. So I would say of of that period, the worst is probably Game Six of last year. Like when a game is really important, so like a playoff game, and especially last year with the stakes involved, I have a tendency to like collapse into a puddle and actively like fall over and throw myself to the grounds or like, you know, rejoice, whatever it is. And so to see them slowly bleed to death over the course of that final game. And like, it was like, Oh, are they going to be able to do it? Nope. <laughs> nope. They're not going to be able to do it. It was just heart wrenching. And, and to have such a great season go down the drain like that was really incredibly painful to watch. And, different from any other previous playoff series because there were actual like expectations this time. So for me, my personal fandom, it would probably be last year game six. Okay. Next one. I know Kyle will have an answer this for this. I'm not sure about you, Riley, um, but favorite star Wars film. I'm let's I'd say empire strikes back or rogue one. I'd say are my top two. And I would give the slight edge to empire strikes back. Okay. Is Empire Strikes Back the sign? Of, <laughs> the <laughs> so the number. It, it's. I know the Star Wars films. I'm not like totally like out of the loop on that. From the first six films, so like episodes one through six, is Empire Strikes Back? Is that six? Nope, that's five. Or is that five? Okay. Which is the one where they go to Endor and they blow up the second Death Star? Is that six? Yeah, that is six. Five is when they find out that Luke is Darth Vader's son. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, I would say 
so five is like a lot more like exposition building up to six. Uh, and when I was a kid, I was like, I have no idea what the hell is happening right now. So I think I like the big explosions of six more than I did five. And I, even as a kid, I knew that the Clone Wars sucked. So don't feel strongly about that. And episode one, uh, so all, all over the place that I think it's so bad, it's sort of good. So I would put that maybe two just because of the novelty factor. Okay. All right. Uh, next one. Bucks player. And I, I, I tend to put this this Bucks player like on the, let's say it's not like a, like a star, or like a super high pick or whatever, but like uh, a lower rung Bucks player you were the most irrationally excited for. <laughs> I mean, I... It might be Dante, to be honest. <laughs> it might be Dante DiVincenzo. <laughs> I'm trying to think back on other ones. No, it's definitely Dante. I think I've been the most vocal for how much I believe in Dante. So that, yeah, I'll go with him. I think it's really, I mean, it, it, I think it gets underplayed how crappy it was the way that it ended with Larry Sanders because... While I think he pro- he probably got rated way too high given his actual output, in the darkest days of the mid-aughts for the Bucks, he he was, or not mid-aughts, of, of the 2010s, like early 2010s, uh, he was this weirdly dynamic player, like defensively, he, he was just like, I don't, I don't know, there was just this, I, I can't imagine he would still be with the team, even if the whole thing that happened ended up working, you know, if that didn't actually end up going as the way it did. I just thought he was a lot of fun to watch and he, he exuded this energy that made it easy to like him as a fan, um, both on the court and, you know, a little quirky off the court as well. So I would say uh, of all the quote unquote lower rung, and I'm not sure if he qualifies, I would say Larry would probably be my guy there. I'd say he qualifies as lower rung. I'm going to pipe in on this one just cause I have feel strongly about it. My guy was Damian Inglis. Yes. I, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I spent the entire first year, that he was injured just watching highlights of Donovan Inglis and just hoping that he might be able to get on the court soon and fuming when KJ McDaniels played really, really well. And people would say the Bucks could have had McDaniels. And I thought, just wait till you see Inglis next year. He's <laughs> going to absolutely rip the court up. And then it turned out he couldn't really move much at all. He wasn't really athletic. He couldn't jump um, and he couldn't shoot. So uh, he was out of the league really, really quickly. So he was probably mine. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, was that the same year that Job got drafted? Where they uh, draft? No, Cardinals? I think that was the same year Jabari got drafted. Yeah, it was because I think it was. Um, I wasn't it. Wal- yeah, no, I, I don't think that was, was the same year Job. Yeah, were you about to bust out nasty Nate Walters there for a yeah. second? <laughs> <laughs> I did love Job though. I loved when ESPN did like a, a ranking of best players in the league, and like number four hundred was Clint Capella, and three ninety nine was Job. So like he was just above the worst player out of 400 in the league. That was, um, oh, I was proud of him. And you know what? You know what? Clint Capella went on to get a max deal. So really in an alternate universe, I like to believe J.O.B. also went on to deserve a max deal from somebody at some point or another. I was watching um, interviews with him actually recently. He like started uh, some sort of, he was at an anime convention. He started some anime thing and he's over. Yeah, it was actually kind of cool. Um, Do you know if he's so- still playing somewhere? I think he's over overseas, um, but yeah, it was actually it was actually pretty cool. Uh, so kudos, shout out to Job. I was watching interviews with uh, them, like trying to get to know him at his first summer league, and he had the most like nondescript answers ever. Like well, I don't have, any, I had no insight into him after the whole series of questions. 
and circling back around to Damien Inglis, uh, he is playing for Strasbourg, and I believe that's the French Basketball League. He was the MVP of a recent match, and his stat line, 13 points, 10 rebounds. Amazing. So uh, th- that will be going in the Monday morning media roundup if you want to catch some <laughs> Damien Inglis highlights from his time in France right now. Okay, guys. Uh, uh, Johnny O'Brien is currently playing at Locomotive Kuban, which I uh, – yeah, it's – a Russian team. That's all. You I do. Got. You do. You job. You do. You. Proud of you. All right. Last question here. Uh, I was a big Jack's Pizza fan. I don't know if you guys were, so you can answer uh, this if you were a Jack's Pizza fan or just a pizza fan. Um, top Jack's Pizza flavor or just top pizza flavor. I am a big sausage and pepperoni person. Um, with the runner-up <laughs> being the five cheese, so those are my top two favorites. Man, that's a Wisconsin answer if I've ever. Heard <laughs> <one>. <laughs> Um, I would say I go Supreme minus Black Olives because anything that includes olives just horrendous, and Black Olives especially just olives are trash. Yeah. That, wow, this is uh, this is hard. Green olives are my favorite <laughs> oh, no. topic. Olives are oh. trash. Oh. Well, it's good yeah. to know that if we ever do like a live podcast, we'll have to order two pizzas because we can't be sharing, or we'll have to do half and half at a minimum to be able to please everybody. But Supreme uh-huh. is probably what I go for. Okay. All right. That's all right. No one really likes olives. It's just me. Okay. Uh, all right. You get to have them all for yourself. That's a, that's the way you look at it. It's all for you then. Okay. That's that's better. Now I feel sunnier. All right, guys. Let's do some miscellaneous topics here. First, I don't think we talked about this, but I believe the Cream City jerseys were brought out for the first time against Charlotte. Was that yep. the first time? Yes, it was. Um, Riley, thoughts on the Cream City jerseys? I think they look really, really good. Um, a couple of things. One, that stupid M on the shorts. I thought they, I thought they learned from their mistakes and got rid of that years ago. Lo and behold, much to our chagrin, they brought it back and it looks horrendous on the shorts. So if they, <laughs> if they fixed that and either did the state outline or just some sort of unoffensive thing, I think be almost a perfect jersey design. I love the fonts in the fronts. Um, well, I, I my personal favorite jerseys for Mo, for the Bucks generally have Milwaukee in the front. I just find more value as a fan for whatever you know nebulous reason them having the city name on the front instead of the Bucks because the Bucks are whatever but Milwaukee. It's like the city itself. You can kind of get into that, but I think if the closest thing we're getting is Cream City, I love that. I love the blue outlines. I I think they're really really good, and both the cream jerseys they've done, I think they executed perfectly. So big fan of them. What about you, Kyle? So I actually have warmed up to the shorts. I hated it initially. I hated the M. I really did. And then I watched it last night. I was like, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Like, it's still not great, but it's not. It's okay. It's now been bumped up from this is godforsaken awful to this is okay. I've warmed up to it. I also like the cream. I like the how simple it is this year. Um, I don't like the font. I don't like how the lettering is, whether it's the font. I just don't like it. That I think is my biggest gripe with these jerseys. It's just like the lettering just seems very, it just seems like all of it's like, it's trying to be like style, like stylized with cursive, but also like blocky to represent like the hardness of Milwaukee. I don't know. It, I just don't like the lettering and the font on it, but I ironically, all of my Buck jerseys that I do own have some form of deer on it. So while I saw so in my it's kind of interesting seeing Riley, you mentioned like how it you like it saying Milwaukee. Well, for me, it's like I kind of like just having that deer on like buck head on it just because I think it's very straightforward. I think it kind of represents what the bucks are and kind of how that growth has been. 
Um, I do like, I don't mind cream sedan. No, people are bemoaning that. I just fix the font. That's my own request. Fix the font. It, just put it in cursive. Make it look nice. It looks blocky as all hell. I like the cream city jerseys. I, I, I like how much we can gripe about the shorts given. Well, I've never seen one person in, on earth purchase a, a full Jersey and short outfit and wear it out. <laughs> like, I really like the idea of someone actually doing that. Uh, yeah, I mean, what bugs me most about the M is that they freaking it's so it's such a great idea to just hide the stupid M in the little where you where you would put a belt buckle. You know how on the shorts it has that little spot like right in the front. Yeah. Yep. Draw. Yep. You can just hide it right there. And then they have the state logo right there. Just put the state logo on the sides and then hide the M right there uh, at your like Power Rangers band spot where you can just hide it. Um I really like the blue trim. I think the blue trim really pops around the number on the back. Yes. And if people were watching warm-ups last night, they finally embraced the blue. They were wearing like really sleek, oh, totally blue I lineups that, that just said Cream City. Didn't it look cool? I really that like was, those. That's probably the best thing Milwaukee has put out. That blue with the Cream City. I need to get that somehow, some way. I, I might actually go opposite from you guys here. I... I understand that everybody thinks they would like the blue. I don't think that shade of blue would look good as like the primary color on a jersey. Now, if it was an alternate, it's whatever, but it, this is way too deep of a talk for, <laughs> for this podcast in terms of alternate jerseys. But I, I just don't think that blue in particular, the one that they've chosen, like it's a really pretty accent blue, but I'm curious how that would look as a full you know, full jersey because even the warm ups last night, like, yeah, it looks good with the cream city, but that full blue, it's a little too garish in my opinion. So that'd be the only gripe I would have if they went with the blue. Yeah, I think the blue works really well with just the, like if you do the blue and the cream. So, like, if the jersey color was that blue and then the lettering and the numbers were cream, I think that would, and like the trimmings were cream, that would look fantastic. And that's what I'm kind of hoping for down the road. Yeah, trying to mix in green would be tough with those two colors. It's like an extra, like it's okay here because the cream, it kind of works as a good base to work off of other colors, but blue and then toss in like some accent green, that might be a little strange, but they've done pretty well on most of the alternates. So I, I think they would probably do pretty well on that, except for, I mean, last season's alternates are just horrendous. I hate it. Oh, that, that so city much, jersey so. was terrible. And then the urn was perfect. Wait, was the urn one? They both were like, the city was the Mecca jersey, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was horrendous. I thought the, no, the that was wonderful. Was... Oh god. <laughs> okay. I'm getting get my I'm getting my DiVincenzo Mecca jersey. <laughs> I understand the concept. I like the homage. It just looked terrible. And then when they yeah, had the was... white with the Irish rainbow, that looked perfect. I wish they would do more with that floor. Like I know they can't really bust it out, but I thought it was really cool that they played that game in the is it the Panther Arena now? Or is it still the USL Arena? Yeah, Center? the UWM Panther Arena. Yeah, I, I think it was really cool. I wish they would be able to take that floor or even just make a replica of it and play that in the Pfizer Farm a couple times because I thought that was it was the story behind it's really cool. I think it's re- obviously really unique. So, you know, if Bucks, if you're listening, I'm sure you are. I would suggest putting that back out there, even if you don't have the matching uniforms. I just think it's a cool thing to have. All right, lots of Jersey talk, but let's move on to another segment. Uh, it's time for Riley to lead us into Vulture Talk. What is the situation with Giannis's long-term contract? Giannis sent it to Kumpo. Giannis. 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 Take us away, Riley. 
Well, first I have to say all credit to Adam. That that bumper is astounding. The two weeks off or the week off that we had clearly really, really well spent. Probably one of the best bumpers I've ever heard. And we already have Dante's Inferno, which is just top tier stuff. Uh, so going into Vulture Talk, we actually missed it uh, last week because we were away. Uh, so this will be actually a two-parter Vulture Talk. So first one, the latest that came across the wire, and I believe where did it come from? Complex. Complex seems to be the website that has all these rumors for whatever reason. I saw that Hot Hot Hoops, our cousin over on SB Nation for the Heat, they also ran a story about it. But it says here that the Heat are prioritizing 2021 cap space to chase Giannis or... In case Giannis doesn't work out, their backup plan is going to be Victor Oladipo. So it's good to hear that the Heat have a really good plan of having money and just, I guess, selling Giannis on kind of like their, I think since the LeBron thing worked out, which I think, you know, as quote unquote obvious as it looks back now, there were a lot of different factors that kind of led to that. I'm not sure if Giannis, does does he really love Jimmy Butler? Like, is that going to be the same thing as LeBron and Dwayne Wade, for example? I, I have my doubts. Uh and then the other story was, I believe, this uh, the connection, uh, still not 100% clear as to where it comes from, but according to a lot of people, Masai Ujiri is essentially Giannis's second father, uh, if you if you read it right from everybody else. So the Knicks plan on hiring Masai Ujiri, or, or would like to, we'll see if it actually happens, and then using Masai as the way to get Giannis to go to the Knicks, which uh, they would have to it's it's complicated enough for the Knicks to execute one basic plan to be able to execute <laughs> two of them in succession seems a little bit beyond the ability of that organization now or any time in the future. So I'm not too worried about that, but uh, keep an eye out because the Masai Ujiri as Giannis' second dad connection is going to be critical for deciding where Giannis goes apparently. I just, I can't, I can't even with the Knicks potentially hiring Masai. Uh, the, the Heat... I don't know. I feels like it feels like Pat Riley might get like just set up in a crypt there and like buried in like a glass coffin with his rings out just to try and keep getting players to come here. He's going to be he's going to be like working there till he's like 95, hoping that players will come there. Here's the thing about the heat. Uh, as awesome as Miami is, I went for the first time last year. Really, really awesome city. We were in like South Beach was really picturesque. Uh, this this is not scientific whatsoever, but yesterday when my brother was in town, we were playing NBA 2K20, and I I was playing as the or no he was playing as the Heat all time team. They have not had many good players in their organization's history, and outside of LeBron, like what other free agents? I, I guess Jimmy sorta, but that was a strange situation. I, I, you would think they're a destination, but are they still living off the glory of just for whatever reason, LeBron and team choosing to make that the spot where they would team up? Like, I, I, I don't think there's much of a history of Miami really getting free agents. And so unless that changes radically over the coming years, I, I don't see that being something they can really ride off of for Giannis at least. I think it's one of those where, cause I think Shaq went as a oh, free yeah, agent yeah, to Miami. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's just more Pat Riley himself. And then you combine because Pat Riley is one of those guys where it's like he's going to do what it takes to win. He's going to, you know, he's going to kill people to make it happen. I mean, yeah, he's uh, like a mafia (laughs) boss. He really is like a mafia boss. And that plus Miami, which, you know, like, yeah, I've been to Miami as well. And that nightlife might be better than L.A. nightlife just because one, it's warmer Two, it's maybe slightly cheaper and you don't have to spend as much time in traffic and as L.A. Yeah, Miami nightlife is very dangerous if you're young. If you're old and you want to like try and make it big elsewhere, then yeah, LA is perfect. But 
oh man, Miami, Miami can get you. It's rough. <laughs> but the New York one, I don't know where the next if the Knicks somehow land Mazai Ujiri, good for them. They're still find a way to screw it up because they are the New York Knicks and James Dolan still owns the team. I think we're up to just for I should keep a matrix summer to see all the teams. So I believe the teams that have been mentioned, we have Miami, we have Orlando, we have, I believe the Lakers. I'm not sure if the Clippers have gotten involved, probably at some point, Toronto, the Knicks, uh, obviously Milwaukee will include that. So I think we're up to like six or seven teams. So I think and Golden State. Yes. So I I think by the end of the year, if we're not above 50%, I'll be shocked. I think we might get somewhere into like 60, 75% of the league having expressed interest in Giannis at some point. So I'm waiting uh, for Dallas to jump in somehow. It's Lucas' team now, bro. They're not going to so, go for Giannis. It's Lucas team. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll obviously keep an eye on that, on these uh, vultures coming in throughout the season. But next, we got to get to Kyle's film review uh, of uh, Frozen 2. So, Kyle, Frozen 2, you saw it this, this past week. How was it? Okay, yeah. So last week went to see Frozen Two with my brother-in-law for his birthday. Um, it was not as good as the first Frozen, which not surprising at all because this movie definitely was, I'd say, seventy percent Disney just trying to get some extra money and twenty percent actually having a coherent storyline. Ironically, though, for a kids' movie, it was very dark. It was very grim. <laughs> like, holy shit. <laughs> Like they're talking about like they're because de- obviously it's a Disney movie so dead parents, but then they mentioned like without spoiling too much it's like not only do they talk about the dead parents but they talk about the dead parents parents, and there's like just a lot of themes of parents dying and colonialism and just kind of yeah that's a lot of colonialism it's kind of dark for a kids movie like it gets sad it it was it was still good. Don't get me wrong. It was still a good movie, but definitely definitely not a kid's movie in my opinion. And there isn't a song as catchy as Let It Go, but I think from start to finish, the songs were better, if that makes sense. So, like, Let It Go is like, it'd be like the Houston Rockets. Let It Go is James Harden, <laughs> while, you know, all the other songs that Frozen 2 is an actual complete team that, you know, works from top to bottom. So if you if you were to do gut check right now, one out of ten, what would you say? Just one out of ten, what would you say? Give it six and a half. Dang. Okay, that's right. not bad. What would, what would you have given Frozen one just for context? I give Frozen one like an eight. Okay. I think so the story was, in Frozen one was really good. I think the story in Frozen two was it seemed it was okay. It was pretty simplistic. Like I said, very colonialism. Which okay, whatever doesn't matter to me, but. It was, yeah, I definitely didn't feel like they put in as much effort in the story. The animation, however, in Frozen 2 is spectacular, but the story plot itself seemed kind of bleh. So, okay, so I have a question about this. It So they waited like six years in between films, which I seems very impressive. I know they did other stuff in between to maximize their money or whatever, but in today's day and age, it feels very impressive that they waited that long to put out a sequel to this movie that's basically stayed in the consciousness for the entire time it's been here. Uh, but you still feel like it kind of felt just like a cash grab. Yeah, it definitely still felt like a cash grab just because, and they have a moment in the second movie where they have Olaf the Snowman, like, very quickly and in a funny way explain the first movie which that was probably one of the highlights of the movie is like him explaining the first frozen so like for those that didn't watch it they can kind of just watch that but it just 
I don't know. Like, again, the story just seemed very, it kind of reminded me of Incredibles 2, where it was like, you didn't need a second one. And actually, Toy Story 4, for that matter, as well. You didn't need this movie. Like, there's no, like, you could have left it with just Frozen and it would have been fine. There was no need to have a second movie. There was no need to dive into it. It didn't, it's not like the, because of how the first one goes, you need to like expand on that story. Kind of like the recent trilogy for the Star Wars films. There's no reason to make another trilogy, but it's going to make a hell of a lot of money. I'm looking through uh, Disney's list of films in the 2010s right now because we're going deep on this. I'm really not impressed with the, what they've done in the past decade. So there's there's all the different live action remakes, which I think most people can agree, like conceptually, that's kind of an interesting idea to expand their universe. Like, oh, here, here's a different interpretation of it. But I'm not sure any of them have really been standout. Otherwise, it's it's kind of been a lot of continuations of older series so like toy story 3 which tearjerker good film but that's that just was crazy. great yeah tangled i think tangled was really good i'm a big fan of that one uh looking through cars 2 it was never a cars person <laughs> <laughs> not needed monsters university that felt like a cash grab all not needed as well <laughs> didn't see the- frozen good but like going through there's not a lot that's really jumping out at me and i i think disney's is a little bit of a weird place because it's like you know there's nothing that's no defining character besides the people in frozen and outside of that it just seems like a lot of doing remakes just because they ran out of ideas to do other stuff so I, i'm curious if you guys well it's weird because like yeah they, a lot of it has either been remakes and then they like throw like moana and moana was great and then they do more remakes and then they throw coco and coco's great and then they do more remakes and then you have like big hero six or zootopia like they keep throwing in like one original movie it's like okay this is pretty cool and then they just go back to cash grab like sequels that don't need to be made and live actions and i think yeah the live action is definitely just trying to bring the older movies from like the night like 80s and 90s especially to life but yeah disney's movie list lately has been kind of disappointing and then there's like there's more duds than successes in my opinion this is like a basketball team that had like a decade, and in this case, it would be multiple decades of just championship success. And now they're like they're doing well, but it's just not the, nearly the same. And that drop off feels way bigger than it would actually be. So the San Antonio uh, Spurs. Correct. Yes, the Disney <laughs> Disney in 2019 is the San Antonio Spurs. That's a really good way to put it. Well done. All right. One last digression before we get into the week ahead. Uh, Riley, we're going to give you. I'm going to put one minute on the clock for you to talk about um, your latest fountain pen acquisition. Okay, so I promised that we would stop talking about fountain pens. I lied. Uh, I ended up picking up a Jinhao 950, which is a Chinese pen. Jinhaos are known for being cheap knockoffs, which is why I got it for $10. And you know what? It proved to be a cheap knockoff because the damn thing didn't fill correctly. And then when I actually got it filled, it uh, the feed broke and spilled ink all over my journal. So there's giant uh, ink stains all over the place. Uh, it's heavy as hell, which is fine. Uh, it's long as hell. It writes a lot better posted, which means the cap on the pen versus taking the cap off while you're writing. Uh, yeah, I, I would say for $10, really great value, but there's a reason why it was $10 and it shows. So uh, be careful when you're buying cheap pens, people. The, the difference, uh, the quality difference is notable for most of them. Okay, you have 10 seconds. So out of 10, what would you give it? <sighs> Six. Wonderful. All right, so we've got a 6.5 and a 6 today on reviews, fountain pen and film. 
And then let's dive into the week ahead, guys. Monday, December 2nd, Bucks take on the Knicks. Then Wednesday, they are at the Pistons, another glorious game against Detroit. And then Friday is the marquee game, uh, home versus the Clippers. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get to see maybe both teams at full strength. That would be wonderful. Uh, what do you guys have for your predictions for this week? Kyle, you go first. I'm going to go two and one, win against the Knicks, win against the Pistons. Just fall short against the Clippers. I think one of Kawhi and Paul George will be there. And that'll prove to be the difference. And Montrez Harrell will probably have another 30 point, 15 rebound game. It's going to annoy me to no end. Kyle and I are switching places this week. I'm going to be the optimistic one for for, for a change. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go for 3 0 this week. Uh, I agree that the New York and Detroit games, those should be wins. Uh, the Bucks are helped out with the fact that none of them are back to backs. Even though it's a home travel home, it's not that long of a trip to go to Detroit. I think it's like an hour flight or whatever. I think we can anticipate both teams hopefully being full health for the Clippers game. So uh, it'll be a lot more of a fair interpretation or a fair benchmark for what to expect from the teams heading forward. But I expect wins, even if uh, Paul George or Kawhi play, um, regardless of the result, it'll be really interesting just because it it feels like a lot of the good teams we played this year, they've been missing a couple of players for load management or whatever reason. Uh, So hopefully we'll get a full blooded test to figure out where this team is at. And I'm going to go two and one. Uh, I can see the Bucks falling against the Clippers. Sadly, I kind of tend to agree with Kyle that maybe Paul George or Kawhi Leonard is going to make the difference. Going to have a delightful, delightful uh, story from national media about how the Clippers entered the Bucks winning streak. And does Giannis have enough uh, to be able to take them down in the finals? Uh, I really, really look forward to avoiding all of that. So. Thank you again to everyone for listening to this week's episode of the Brew Hoop Podcast. We'll be back again next week. Next week, Make sure to follow us on Twitter and check out all of our stuff on brewhoop.com. Thank you again for listening. Talk to you again soon.